guys can have a seat. If you have a copy of the scriptures, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 32 this morning. And we have been, for the last month or so, month, two months, we've been studying the book of Exodus. And if you were here last week, you know that we studied Exodus 19 and 20, and you're going, why are we skipping 12 chapters? And well, I'm going to tell you, and we're in 32 today, I'm going to tell you what happened in those 12 chapters. So here's what happened since last week. Well, last week we saw God give uh, the people of Israel the Ten Commandments. And for the, last, the, ne- the next three, four chapters after God gives the Ten Commandments, He elaborates on those Ten Commandments. And the people, here's what happens, the people of Israel, they hear these laws and they go, man, God is good. He has brought us out of Egypt. And what do they say? They say, we will do everything the Lord has said. And what they are doing, God is saying, this is what I expect my people to live like. And what they respond and they say, we want to be your people. We will do everything you've said. They say almost like a, it's like a proposal. They say, I do. I will. I, I, I will do everything you say. I will be faithful. And then secondly, in chapter 24, God then reestablishes his covenant with the people of Israel. Now, he reminds them of the promises that he made to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what are the promises? The promises were that they would be a great nation, that God would bless them, that God would give them a land, and through them, God would bless the whole world. That was God's promise to the nation of Israel. And he then, in Exodus 24, commits to them. He he says, I've already covenanted this with you. I will make you a great nation. You've said you will obey everything I've said, well, I'm covenanting that I will be your God. I do. I will. I will be faithful. It's almost like a marriage ceremony. God commits to them. And after this, Moses goes up on the mountain where God's presence is, and he begins talking to God. And he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And while Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, what God does is he begins talking to Moses about how to build the tabernacle. And I know you're like, this is normally, Will, you start with like a funny story and like an anecdote about, you're going right into it today. Yes, because we've got to get the detail, we've got to get the background, the context to understand this story. But Moses goes on the mountain, and we're going to study the tabernacle in a few weeks, but right in this moment, God is telling Moses the details of what the tabernacle would be like. And here's what you need to know for our sake, for, our time, for the sake of our time together today about the tabernacle. All throughout the Exodus story, we've seen this for the last several weeks, God has led Israel from sort of a distance. So he's, when he speaks to them, he speaks through Moses. He's led through a mediator, through Moses. When he led them out of Egypt, it was, he was in a cloud and a pillar of fire. So he was kind of off and they followed him. And now they are in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God is on the top of the mountain where there's thunder and there's lightning and there's smoke and there's fire. And they're at the foot of the mountain. So God is kind of off up there. And that's great. Like they can see God's presence. The tabernacle, though, is God saying, I want to come and dwell among you. I want to be a part of your community. I want to be with you at all times. I want to be in your midst. 
See, they were wandering through the wilderness. They were living in tents. And the tabernacle is just an elaborate tent where God's presence, very presence, would dwell. And God's actual presence was going to be with his people. This is what he was talking with Moses about up on the mountain. And Moses is up there for 40 days, 40 nights, and God's given him all the plans and all the details. And Moses, in his mind, is probably thinking, this is so great, I cannot get wait to get down and tell the people that God is going to come down in our midst and live with us. That's a beautiful thing. God is building a home with them. So there's, there's this marriage language that is happening in the book of Exodus up to this point. They have covenanted, the people have covenanted to God. God has covenanted to them. And now God is talking about how he wants to build a home with them. What is that? That is a covenant relationship. That is a covenant relationship where there's commitment, there's covenant, and then there's building a life together. And that is what God wants with the people of Israel, with his chosen people. And all throughout the New Testament, this same language applies to you and me. Because what is the church referred to in the New Testament? The bride of Christ. God is a covenant-keeping God. This is who God is. He commits to be faithful to his people. And he always, always honors his commitment. Which is what makes the story we're going to read today so tragic. So today we're going to be looking at Exodus 32. You may be familiar with it. It is the story of a golden calf. Now, what I want you to do today, I know that you're like, oh, I've heard this story before, but I want you to just give yourself a clean slate. And we're not, I don't even have a bunch of sermon points today. We're just going to walk through Exodus chapter 32, kind of line by line, and we're going to take from this what I feel like God is speaking to us today. And I feel like God is going to speak to us today. So Exodus chapter 32. Remember, Moses has been away for 40 days, and they're at the foot of the mountain. They're wondering where Moses is. When the people saw that Moses delayed <clears throat> to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, Moses' brother. They gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Now as for this guy, Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. The New International Version says, As for this fellow, Moses, who is this guy? You know what they're saying? They're like, Moses ghosted us. You know what it's like to be ghosted? When somebody just like, you text them, and then the bubble comes up, and then it disappears, and then you don't hear from him again for 40 days and 40 nights. That's what's happened with Moses. They're like, where is he? Like, we haven't seen him for 40 days. It's time to move on. He was supposed to lead us, but we haven't seen him for 40 days. We've, what's going on with this guy? We got to move on. So Aaron, Moses' brother, said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now, first thing, when I read that, when I was a teenager, I used to want an earring so bad. And my mom wouldn't let me have an earring. I wish I would have known that their sons in the Bible had earrings. And I could have told my mom right there, see, guys with earrings in the Bible. Okay, there's a joke, but this is actually very tragic, isn't it? Do you remember the Ten Commandments that they just got in chapter 20? What are they doing? No other gods before me. Do not make graven images. And that's exactly what they're doing just a few days after Moses has given, God has given them the law. 
And here's what's so tragic about this scene. Where do you think they got that gold? They were slaves. They didn't have, they didn't have possessions like that. If you remember from the Exodus, as they were leaving Egypt, God said, go and plunder the gold. Go plunder Pharaoh's house. And they, on their way out of Egypt, God gave them a gift, and they t- brought gold. They brought, they, he gave them wealth. He gave them beautiful jewelry. And that, that was God's gift to them as they were leaving. It was like a wedding gift. He's like, this is for you. Take the gold on your way out. That gold that they are taking out of their ears and off their hands, that was a gift from God. It was there to remind them how God redeemed them and delivered them. And now they're taking that gold out of their ears and off their wrists. They're throwing it into a fire so that they can melt it down and craft for themselves a new God. Do you think of the insult of this to a holy God? To a God who has delivered them and redeemed them. This would be like someone taking off their wedding ring, selling it, and then using the money from the sale to go purchase a hotel room to go have an affair with someone else. The insult of this, the heartbreak that God must have felt, this was His gift to them when He delivered them, and now they are melting it down and creating a God for themselves. And not only that, it says they fashioned the calf with a graving tool. Like they worked on this. Like, they sweated, they gathered materials, and they used their skill and all the things they had learned in slavery, the slavery that God delivered them out of, all the skills they learned how to fashion things, they used that to fashion an idol. They didn't slip into idolatry. They're going to try to say that later, but they didn't just slip into this, they pursued it. And then the gall that they have in verse 4, it says, and they said... These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They look at the golden calf and they say, this is our gods. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And you're like, what? Like a golden statue of a baby cow? That's the God that brought you out of Egypt? It says, when Aaron saw this, verse 5, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast before the who? Lord. A feast to Yahweh. Now they are justifying this idolatry, and they're making it a part of their supposed worship of God. That is breaking another commandment, which is taking the Lord's name in vain. Because they are not speaking the truth about who God is, and God, I promise you, wants no part of that worship service. And they said, we're going to use this calf as our feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, verse 6. And they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. And they rose up to play. Another translation says they rose up to indulge in revelry. There's strong sexual undertones here. And from the mountain, God sees all this happening. And look at verse 7. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people, your, your people, Moses, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now Moses is up on the mountain, 
God's up on the mountain, and those people think, well, God has left us. Even though they can see the thunder and the lightning and the fire, and they think that, they, they think that the life they live down in the valley, that God's not going to see, that God won't hear, that God won't know. But God knows every detail of their rebellion. And he speaks it back to Moses. And he says, he says, they are stubborn and they continue to go in their own way. And listen to what God says. He says, now therefore, Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. It's as if God says to Moses, look, my promise to bless the whole world through these people. Was, I promise to bless the whole world through these people. But these people don't want to have any part of what I've called them to do. What's stopping me from starting over and making a new people? And it's like God saying, well, what about our covenant? They said they would do everything that I said, and they certainly haven't honored that commitment. We will do everything the Lord said, they said, but they have broken that commitment. They have broken the marriage vows. And here it even seems that God wants to back out of His, his commitment because they've abandoned theirs. But listen to what Moses prays. And this is a beautiful picture of prayer, and this is a beautiful picture of spiritual leadership. But Moses implored the Lord his God. When was the last time you implored God? And he said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you, remember God said, these are your people. God says, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? God, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, by your own name, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. You know what Moses does? He praise back God's promises to God. He says, God, remember the promise you made to Abraham. Remember the promise you made to Isaac. Remember the promise you made to Jacob. And remember the promise you just made to us back in chapter 24. Moses reminds God of his promises. And that is a good example of what prayer can look like for you and me. When we feel like God's not there, when we feel like God has forsaken us, we can remind Him of His promises that He will never leave us, that He will never forsake us. And, and Moses says, what about your glory? What about your name? You started this. Your glory is at stake. Finish it. But look at verse 14. It says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people. Let's get down to verse 19. It says, as soon as Moses came near to the camp, so now he's walking down the mountain, and he saw the calf and the dancing, they're partying. Moses' anger burned hot. That's like Hebrew for it. He was ticked off. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf. This is, listen to this. This is like he went ballistic, and I think it's awesome. He took the calf that they had made burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Drink up. This is the God you want? Consume him. See what happens. This is poison. It's like powdered gold. Moses is furious. And Moses said to Aaron, this is where the story kind of gets like funny, but in a sad way. 
Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do that you brought that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron, Aaron is a knucklehead, okay? And Aaron said, Oh, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. This is if Moses is an example of good leadership, Aaron's an example of bad leadership here. He's throwing the people under the bus. You know these people. How their hearts, they're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for you, this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And this is Aaron. Listen, he just straight up lies now. He says, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Can you believe it? And it's funny if it wasn't so sad. It sounds like a child. You're like, how did Sharpie get all over the wall? This happened in my house this week. You know, and it'd be like if one of my kids was like, well, you know, I was like carrying like a box of markers and then I tripped and then they just, it got all over the wall. It's, it's absurd that my kids didn't say that. It's as if they said that. They owned up to it. But it's funny. It would be funny if it wasn't so sad and tragic. And when Moses saw, and keep in mind, Moses, Aaron's like, well, we just threw the gold in the fire and this just happened. But remember what it said? It said that they, 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 they made it with a graving tool. Aaron knows better. It didn't just happen. He worked on this calf. In verse 25, it says, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, which is, you could translate that as they went wild. For Aaron, listen to this. I love how the Bible doesn't let Aaron off the hook. And Moses wrote this. Moses is retelling. So like Moses is like, bringing it back around to Aaron. It's like when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi, that's the priests of the community, gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and from the gate to gate throughout the camp and each of you is to kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor and the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell they died there are consequences to their rebellion to their disobedience you see this is the undoing of the Ten Commandments because God said that if you obey my law you will experience life but here they are, they're seeing, as they disobey His law, now they're seeing death. They're seeing death. In verse 29, Moses says, Today you have been ordained for this service. He says this to the priest. You've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. See, their sin was severe, and the result was death for nearly 3,000 of them. Now this story has its share of humor, especially Aaron, you know? But the humor of the story actually highlights the tragedy of it all, doesn't it? See, Aaron tries to hide just how deliberate his idolatry was. Oh, it just happened. It, I, I just, oh, I, before I knew it, this happened. But the idol they made, it was deliberate. It wasn't an accident, and that's why it's so tragic. And it's tragic, especially from our perspective, as we're looking back on all that God has done for them. And how faithful he's been to them. We know all that God has done for them. He saved them from Egypt. He defeated their enemies. He gave them gifts of gold on their way out. He provided them with food and water every day supernaturally. 
For three months, they have been getting direct words from God on how to live. And even at this very moment, they're at the foot of the mountain where they can literally see at the top of Mount Sinai God's presence in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning. And yet they still rebel. And it's even more tragic when you think of why and when they did it. They did it because they hadn't heard from Moses in a few weeks. They grew impatient. They wanted more words and more blessings from God, but Moses went away for 40 days and 40 nights. And they wanted more of God. They wanted more of the blessings of God, and it's been 40 days, and they haven't gotten a new blessing or a new word, and they get frustrated, and they get impatient. And when they didn't receive a word from God in the time frame that they expected, they grew impatient, and they created a new way to satisfy their desires. But why was Moses taking so long? This is why it's tragic. The reason Moses was taking so long is because God was instructing him on the details of the tabernacle. God was making plans to come and live among them. He wasn't neglecting them. He hadn't abandoned them. He was making plans to dwell with them. But they couldn't see that, and they didn't know that, and they forgot that God was trustworthy, and they lost trust in Him, and they stopped trusting His promises, and they abandoned His commandments, and they turned to something else for their satisfaction. Now, pardon me if this is too graphic, but I, I think we need a graphic illustration to show us just how severe their sin was. I want you to think of a man waiting for his wife to come home. And she's on her way home, but she makes a few stops on the way home. She stops to buy a bottle of wine. She stops to pick up dinner. She stops to pick up some bubble bath. She stops to pick up something to wear. Some lingerie, if you didn't follow. <laughs> she's got a whole thing planned for him for that evening. And meanwhile, he, he gets upset and he gets impatient that she's not home yet and he fires up his laptop and goes straight to a cheap pornography website. Because, where is she? I'm frustrated over here. See, they committed spiritual adultery. They broke their vows and they broke God's heart because they didn't trust that the waiting that God was putting them through was for their good. Remember, they waited for generations and in their waiting, God brought them out of slavery and now they can't wait for 40 days to hear from God. And we can read a story about th like this about a golden calf and we can laugh and think that it doesn't really apply to us because we would never melt down our jewelry and call it a God. But, can we with just a little bit of time we have together this morning talk about how hard it is for us to wait on God. Waiting on God and then the spiritual adultery that often accompanies our waiting. The Israelites went 40 days without hearing from God. And during those 40 days, God was preparing a place to dwell with them. But they didn't know that. They just felt abandoned. And that long absence for them generated pan panic and anxiety in their hearts. Moses is gone. Where is Moses? Where, has God abandoned us? Has Moses abandoned us? And even though they had signs of physical signs of God's presence on the mountain, there was something in their hearts that questioned, what if God never comes off the mountain again? 
What if Moses never comes back down? What if all those promises that he made 40 days ago, what if all those blessings that he promised, what if they never come true? What if we never move on from this wilderness place? What if we have to live in these tents forever? What if the life I'm hoping for never happens? That is the waiting they experienced. And it was in that waiting that they were tempted to commit spiritual adultery on God. And when you put it in those terms, I can relate to that. Can you? See, for some of you, it feels like God has been silent for far longer than 40 days and 40 nights. For some of you, and I've had these seasons where it feels like God has been silent for years. And you know and I know that waiting on God sometimes can be brutal. And the temptation that happens in our hearts, in our waiting seasons, is very real. What is that temptation? Here's what the temptation is, always. The temptation in our waiting is to replace God and the way of God with a cheap, available, and produced substitute. See, the Israelites got tired of waiting, and so they produced for themselves a readily available substitute to stand in for God. God told us not to worship idols. God told us not to fashion graven images. We know that, but He's not here. And this will be fine for now. At least until He gets back. While we wait for Him to show up. Is this what God wants? No. Is this what God said? No. But I need something to do for now. While I wait on His promises. And when the promises show up, then I'll stop doing that thing. How many of us have told that lie? Aaron, why don't you make us something to worship so that we can have something to do while we wait on God? The Apostle Paul calls this exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And I think the golden calf thing throws us off a little bit because we're like, I would never do that. Worship a golden calf? That's weird. But what is the golden calf? Why a golden calf? See, if you just do a quick study on the nations surrounding the Israelites at this time, nations like Egypt and Cana, Bulls were worshipped. Go look at like the hieroglyphics and all that. You see like big strong bulls. Bulls were worshipped as power and like, you know, they were strong. And the Israelites, they didn't worship a bull though. They're like, we're not worshipping the gods of our enemies. They made a calf. Now what's significant about a calf? A calf is a domesticated, approachable, baby version of a bull. It's not scary. You can walk right up to a calf. Like, with no fear. Like, if, if a bull shows up, like if I'm out running on a trail somewhere and there's a bull, I'm scared. If there's a calf, I just like, and it runs off, right? You're not scared of calves. You can walk right up to them. But you can, a calf is, it's, 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 it's weak. A calf is no threat. A calf can make no demands of you. If a bull snorts at you, it's making a demand. Get out of my way. Now what do you do if a bull like, does the thing? You get out of its way. It makes a demand of you, and you, 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 you do what it asks you to do. A calf can't make a demand of you because you're stronger than it. That's the kind of God they want. And that's always our temptation. Our temptation is always to domesticate God, to create an image of God in our minds that doesn't demand holiness. One that doesn't mind when we do our own thing. Oh, God just wants me to be happy. It's, he, he would love it if I disobey His commandments because doing that would make me happy and He really just wants me to be happy. That's the, that's the justification we use. 
We want an image of God that we can manage. But a God like that, a God of our own making, can never save us. A God like that can never challenge us. A God like that can never transform us. Because we have the control. A God like that can never tell us no, and a God like that can never ask us to wait. God, this is God's desire for the people of Israel. He wanted to make them a light to the nations. He wanted to bless the whole world through them. He wanted to recreate the fallen world. He wanted to, to bring it back into His good plan through them. He wanted to use them to do that. And for them to be a part of that, they had to trust and obey God. But they didn't really want to be a light to the nations. They wanted a God for themselves that gave them what they wanted. God wanted to use them, but they wanted to use God. They wanted a God they could use, one that didn't make demands of them, but they wanted one whom they could make demands of. And the Israelites made a golden calf because a calf was easy to manage. And it was there when they needed it. They could control it. It would never make them wait. And if they wanted to rise up and indulge in revelry, it wouldn't say a thing. And I understand this temptation. And I know you do too. To replace fidelity to God with a cheap substitute. But we must fight against it. Everyone in this room wants fulfillment. Whether that's relational fulfillment, you want a spouse, or you want your spouse to do X, Y, Z. Vocational fulfillment, you want fulfillment in your career, you want the promotion or the raise or the uh, just the joy of loving what you do. Maybe it's physical fulfillment. We all want fulfillment. And sometimes in our lives, actually many times in our lives, God asks us to wait for fulfillment in these areas, often because He's working to bring about that fulfillment in His timing and in a way that pleases and honors Him. But we don't like to wait, do we? And when we get tired of waiting, that is when we take cheap substitutes. But as we saw in this passage, cheap substitutes are just that. They're cheap. They don't bring life. They always bring more heartache and more frustration with God. And they actually, in the end, lead us to death. Now, because I'm your pastor, I want to say this as lovingly as I can. We tell ourselves some stupid things in trying to justify our spiritual disobedience, don't we? Well, maybe the Bible doesn't really say that exactly. Google. Does the Bible really say, you know that was the first sin? Did God really say that? And listen, and we will ask those questions and we will go seek advice from anybody who will tell us what we want to hear. But listen, and listen to me, please listen to me. Deep down, the Spirit of the living God that lives within you is speaking. And you know what you're doing. He's speaking to you. Listen to Him. Amen. Repent and trust and wait for God to fulfill His promises. Because He will. Do not commit the great sin. The sin of spiritual adultery. In your waiting, I and I... I, so many of you are in waiting seasons right now. Waiting seasons that I could not even fathom the pain you experience. 
You say, Pastor, you don't know the pain I'm going through. You're right, I don't. But God does. Trust Him. In your waiting, you are tempted to distrust and abandon the promises and the commands of God. And you're willing to go take, try to take a shortcut around the way of Jesus to experience the abundant life. And that's not possible. The story of the Israelites and the golden calf ought to be a warning shot to your soul. James chapter 1, verse 12, listen to this. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, steadfast under waiting. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now listen to this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That was the story of Israel. And listen, blessed is the man and the woman who remains faithful in the waiting seasons. But the person who says, this is God's fault. He's been gone way too long. And i got to figure out something to do with these desires. That's God's fault. He's taken too long. That person who says that is a fool. And that is exactly what the Israelites said. They said, well, God, it just took so long. We had to worship something. A fool says, I'm being tempted by God. But when in reality you are being enticed by the enemy, and the enemy always has death in mind for you. Do not say God is tempting me. Listen, here's how the story ends. The next day, this is verse 30, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, listen to what Moses says, But now, God, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague to the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron had made. Did you hear what, God, what Moses asked God? He said, God, is there a way that you can blot me out and forgive them? God, is there any way, this is good spiritual leadership. Moses says, God, is there any way that you can direct your anger and your heartache toward their sin at me so that they don't die? I'm willing to die for them. And God says no to Moses. Why would God say no to Moses? Because Moses wasn't innocent. Because Moses wasn't the Messiah. Moses wasn't pure and spotless. Moses couldn't be a sacrifice for the sins of the people because Moses had sins of his own. Now, I want you to imagine this picture of Jesus in the Gospels. You have this picture of him riding into Jerusalem. And as he's walking into the city, what are people saying to him? Hosanna! Save us! They're celebrating Jesus as the Messiah, who was the one who was going to destroy their enemies. They thought that Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem, go straight to the Roman court, and overthrow their political enemies. They wanted political freedom, and they wanted political power. That's what they wanted. And that's what they thought the Messiah was. When they said, God, save us to Jesus, Hosanna, they wanted, hey, 
rise up and make our nation great again. Make us powerful. Defeat our enemies. But Jesus rode into Jerusalem and did something that they didn't want him to do. He rolled into Jerusalem and started talking about the forgiveness of sins and the kingdom of heaven. They were like, we don't want that. You said that you'll overthrow the enemies. We want that now. We want the political experience of the kingdom of God right now. We don't want all the forgiveness of sins. We just want political power. And they got really ticked off with Jesus because Jesus was talking about the kingdom of heaven and was talking about forgiveness of sins. And in just a few short days, they realized that Jesus wasn't going to do what they wanted, at least not in the time frame that they hoped. And they got tired of waiting, just like the Israelites. So they called for his execution. And on Sunday, the shouts of save us. By Friday, those shouts will crucify him. We want a king, turn to, we want Barabbas, a cheap and available substitute. They didn't just worship a golden calf, they killed the very Son of God. And on the cross, Jesus asks his heavenly Father the same thing that Moses asked. Jesus asks, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Is there a way that you can blot me out but leave them whole? And God answered his prayer. Because Jesus was innocent and he could be the substitute for our sin. And God put all of all the, the heartache and the anger that he has when we spiritually commit adultery on him. All of, the, all of that he poured into Jesus so that he wouldn't have to pour it out on us. And Jesus received it. See, we often look for ways to substitute Jesus when he doesn't obey our demands. But Jesus becomes our substitute when we disobey his. The grace of God. Blot me out, forgive them. That is the gospel of Jesus. The book of Hebrews says even now that Jesus is interceding for us. That when we sin, that when we rebel against God, Jesus is up there saying, hey, remember the cross? Remember the cross, God. Remember the cross, Father. You have already paid for that sin. So you do not wipe them out because you've already wiped me out. God, remember your promise. Remember the cross. Jesus is interceding for you right now. Will you receive that? I want to pray for you. And in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to receive... The bread and the cup of communion, which is there to remind us that the presence of God is with us today and to remind us that the cross where Jesus paid for it all. But I'm going to invite you. Our deacons are going to be up here if you said, look, I'm, I, I'm in the middle of this or I'm being tempted toward this or I'm just tired. Our deacons are going to be up here and we would love to pray with you. If you would come forward and pray with one of us, um, let someone hear your confession and let someone advocate with you to God before God and, and, and receive His forgiveness this morning. And we'll come and we'll receive the communion together afterwards. So would you stand? When you're ready, if you'd come and receive the body and the blood, and if you need prayer this morning, would you come and pray with one of our deacons?